Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Doors, I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where me and my brother John uh, give you dubious advice, answer your questions, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. But first, we talk what about... What a week it has been for AFC Wimbledon. Oh, well, we'll get to that. But first, let's just talk about how our weeks are going, not yours. And, and I think that you promised us last time an update on your interactions with Miss T. Swift. Hank, I, I did meet Taylor Swift. She was incredibly nice. Uh, she, it was such a pleasure. She also said really nice things about me and my books from uh, atop th- the spinning stage where she performed. Uh, it was a pretty magical evening. Oh, like on, on in front of the people? In front of the 14,000 people at Banker's Life Fieldhouse. Yes, it was a pretty magical evening, and um, I felt so grateful to be there. I do have to say as much, I, I spent very little time with Ms. Swift herself, but I did spend a ton of time uh, with her parents, who were just lovely. Oh. Um, such such <laughs> lovely people. And I, I realized um, that, you know, probably to Taylor Swift, um, it's appropriate for me to hang out with her parents because in her mind, we are all about the same age. <laughs> well, aren't you actually about the same age as Taylor Swift's parents? I'm, I, I mean, I, I'm younger than Taylor Swift's parents, uh, but I realized that to, to Taylor Swift and also just to chronological fact, I am closer in age to them than I am uh, to Taylor herself, which was a, which was a real uh, awakening for me. But uh, no, it was so much fun. She puts on such a great show. As you know, I'm a huge fan of hers, but I thought that um, she just did a wonderful job. Uh, it, was, it was just an amazing night. It was really wonderful. Vance Joy, who's on the Paper Town soundtrack, uh, opened up for her, and he was great as well. And so it was a great week for me. And then on Monday, I had this uh, horrific oral surgery um, so if my voice sounds a little weird, it's because there's all of, there's all of this like cotton and uh, and stitches in my mouth and stuff. Um, so that was a bit of a that was a bit of a bummer. But other than that, things are great. How are you? I'm good. Uh, we had our company retreat uh, this weekend, uh, so I was very very tired uh, after that, and I maybe I maybe maybe drank a little much, 
And uh, but it was great to hang out with all of the people who help us produce SciShow and Crash Course and VidCon and and send stuff out for DFTBA Records and some of the people came out from Indianapolis and they were great and we just had a great time. Um, so that's that feels good to be part of a of a, a good team. And uh, and and then in addition to that, I did. 21 uh, interviews for a, a press junket for for SciShow and our uh, and our, our work with Emerson, an engineering company that we that that uh, supports SciShow's content, and that started at five o'clock in the morning and and was really hard. And it's the second one I've done, and I know you've done a thousand of them, but boy, is that exhausting. Yeah, I find that I cannot blame anyone for anything they say in a press junket interview. Robert De Niro got a bunch of uh, flack last week for. Uh walking out of an interview after saying that the interviewer was condescending. And I, I was really moved by the fact that the interviewer was uh, was was empathetic toward Robert De Niro and was like, I don't think that I was being condescending, but to be fair, those things are horrible. <laughs> and um, I don't really blame anyone for anything that they say in them. And, uh, I, and, and that's kind of how I feel. Now when I see that, you know, somebody said something... Uh, you know, problematic or, or off color or, or whatever in an, in an interview um, that's in a press junket. I'm just, I, I, you know, I, I, I want to, I, I go to see if they apologized because if they apologize, I don't even feel like you have a brain when you're doing those things. It's just <laughs> absolutely, I feel like my soul is leaving my body. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but we are complaining about the first worldiest of, of first world problems. Um, can I read, can I read a poem to you? Read me a poem, John. Hank, today's poem uh, comes to you from George Bilger. You liked the uh, funny poem last week so much that I thought I would read you this one. You've heard it before, but um, boy, do I like it. It's called The Return of Odysseus. You're familiar with the Odyssey, right, Hank? Mm, Yeah, I've heard of it. Did they make it into a movie? Was it a movie? Uh, The the too-long-didn't-read version of uh, the Odyssey is that uh, after a number of years at war, uh, Odysseus uh, goes home, but it takes him like 20 years to go home, hence uh, it being an Odyssey. All right, Hank, so here is The Return of Odysseus by George Bilger. When Odysseus finally does get home, he is understandably upset about the suitors who have been mooching off his wife for 20 years, drinking his wine, eating his mutton, etc. In a similar situation today, he would seek legal counsel, but those were different times. With the help of his son Telemachus, he slaughters roughly 110 suitors and quite a number of young ladies, although in view of their behavior, I use the term loosely. Rivers of blood course across the palace floor. I, too, have come home in a bad mood. Yesterday, for instance, after the department (laughs) meeting, when I ended up losing my choice parking spot behind the library to the new provost, I slammed the door. I threw down my book bag in this particular way I have perfected over the years that lets my wife understand the contempt I have for my enemies, which is prodigious. And then, with great skill, she built a gin and tonic that would have pleased the very gods, and with epic patience she listened as I told her of my wrath, and of what I intended to do to so-and-so, and also to what's-his-name. And then there was another gin and tonic, and presently my wrath abated and was forgotten, and peace came to reign once more in the great halls and courtyards <laughs> of my house." The Return of Odysseus by George Bilger, one of my favorite poems, largely because of its last word, um, in the great halls and courtyards of my house, not my home, not my palace, my house, uh, the least pretentious word he could have chosen in that moment, beautifully, beautifully written poem, um, just couldn't be better start to finish, and I thought that you'd like it, Hank, because you like a good funny. I do. I 
I find that maybe maybe funny poetry is the right entrance for most people. It seems to be for me. All right. Well, don't don't worry. I'm going to get very sad and serious next week. Okay. Make me feel things, John. Uh, Hank, would you like to uh, begin by answering a question from one of our beloved listeners? I think that uh, it wouldn't be quite correct to call it beginning, but I will continue with a question from one of our beloved listeners. This one is from Anna, who asks, Dear Hank and John, sometimes I'll notice that my idea of a person isn't who they actually are, but rather who I want them to be. For me, it can be really hard to stop thinking about them that way and see them for who they actually are. How would you suggest I do that? Well, Anna, you've asked the big question of being a person, maybe the biggest one. Um, Yeah, I mean, inevitably, we're going to project our own ideas of other people onto those people because uh, we're stuck inside of our own consciousness and we can never quite imagine what it's like to be someone else. We can never quite, uh, you know, do a perfect job of listening and stop projecting. I've been thinking about that a lot this week because my uh, my religion professor uh, from college and, and my, my great mentor from college, uh, Professor Donald Rogan, died this week. Uh, he was 85 and, and lived 15 years longer than I expected him to. I, I figured that uh, the old man would die within a year or two of uh, my graduation because, of course, in my mind... Uh, my presence in his life was the center of his life. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but in reality, uh, you know, he had a, a wonderful family, a, a loving wife of, uh, to whom he was married for more than 50 years, uh, beautiful children, and then grandchildren and, and great-grandchildren. Um, and so Don had this, uh, you know, rich and, and wonderful life that I could only glimpse because I was stuck looking uh, at his life from my own eyes and, and kind of seeing myself um, in the center of it. Um, that challenge, I think, of like doing a better job of listening to other people so that we can empathize with them better is like the biggest challenge of adulthood. We've talked about it before on the podcast, but like I, yeah, I mean, that's something that I still struggle with all the time. Am I doing a good job of listening to this person or am I projecting my own feelings and ideas onto them? Yeah. And I'll say, Anna, that uh, the number one the number one first step is to realize you're doing it, which I don't think most people even do. And oftentimes you, I forget that I'm doing it. And so that the real strategy is to just know you're doing it. And, uh, and, and, you know, you can, you can try to project, you can try to, to form a more accurate picture of a person, but, but you can never really form an accurate picture of them. So just know that you aren't. And, uh, and that's so, so powerful. And even people who have known each other for very long times, uh, I, I will still, after uh, 12, 13 years of being with my wife, I, I will, uh, she will do something that I find totally unexpected and very unlike her. And I will say, what? Why would you have chosen to do that thing? And she's like, I, what do you mean? This is totally a thing that I would do. And I'm like, I guess, I guess I just have, I have to, to work harder on understanding who you are still. Yeah, I think, uh, in fact, I just did this to you, maybe, Hank, uh, right before we started recording the podcast. We were talking and um, I accused you of, uh, of uh, pontificating from a place of knowledge when, in fact, it's possible um, that you were just being yourself and I was feeling defensive about my lack of knowledge about something. Um, and in general, like, it's, all, it's just so, so hard um, to uh, listen to p- even the people you're closest to. Um, it's so hard to 
uh, sort of put yourself out of it because of course like everything that you hear is filtered through yourself and through your consciousness mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's almost impossible to know when you're doing it but just being aware of how how much that's inevitably going to shape your worldview your own experience your own um, you know your own sense of self I think uh, sets you on the right path hopefully yes it is a tremendous first step and I am proud of you for making it all right Hank our second question comes from Emily who's 15 and who writes dear John and Hank do you have any advice for someone who just got their driving learners permit I have a piece of advice Emily don't drive too much don't oh. don't drive too much uh, just just drive a little bit um, because you and I say this with great affection are 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 a danger <laughs> on the roads. You are a threat to me and to my family. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. And uh, in addition to that, just know this is very important that you are not a good driver. <laughs> this is this is fine, Emily. I don't know if Hank and I are doing a good job of <laughs> emphasizing this to you enough. So let me just underscore one other thing: you don't drive well. <laughs> um, what and but what I mean when I say that you are not a good driver isn't that you you might be a good driver, but the number one thing is to never think that you are a good driver because it's people who think that they are good drivers that are the most dangerous uh, because they have never That's they, so they true. have never been in an accident because they've been driving for 6 months and they're like well I have clearly an amazing track record I've never got a ticket I've never been in an accident I've never made a single mistake and uh, and it's when when you are in that space between knowing you're bad and being good that you are the most dangerous person. That's when uh, uh, that's the very dangerous place if you're learning how to fly. That space between knowing that you suck and uh, and and then actually being good. When you've stopped when you've stopped remembering that you're you're not very good, but you aren't actually very good. Uh, that's when that's when you die. So uh, you're not a very good driver, and that's okay because you're going to get better. But but not just that. But I carefully. Mean, I I never want to think that I'm a good driver. Yeah. I'm always suspicious of people who are, who are like, I'm a very good driver. The only person I've ever driven in a car with who said, I'm a good driver and I believed them was a professional race car driver. They are good drivers. He was fundamentally different as a driver from everyone else I've ever driven with. Well, I'll also say that I've driven with professional drivers who are pretty amazing. Uh, taxi cab drivers in London, I've felt, are just amazing yeah. drivers. And we also were driven on, on John's uh, Fault in Our oh, Stars tour by Julie, Julie who was an amazing Julie. driver. Um, and, amazing. Yeah, she, she was for years a truck driver. And when you're with an amazing driver like Julie, one of the things that you recognize immediately is that y you are not very good at this. <laughs> like, it's not until you're with a driver like Julie that you realize that there's a whole world to driving that you just don't understand. You know, mm -hmm. there's a whole world to being ready for any emergency that, you know, <laughs> most of us just haven't yeah. reached yet. Yeah. And so I think the number one thing that most of us who are bad drivers like Hank and Emily and myself, the number one thing that we can do is remember that we are bad and try to drive defensively and carefully. Now, obviously, you don't want to drive in fear, but you should drive defensively and carefully. And you should remember, never drive drunk, never drive when you are in any way impaired, and assume that everyone else on the road is a terrible, distracted driver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Emily, I'm sorry if it sounds like our advice is a little firm on this one, (laughs) but I just... Yeah, what it comes down to is that driving is the most dangerous thing that we do, and we should Mm -hmm. be careful. Driving is not the most dangerous thing that I do, Hank, but you're not a risk taker like (laughs) I am. All right, we got another question from another Emily. Is that okay? Can we do two Emilys in a row? Yeah, absolutely. Is either of them, you think, my my most important ex-girlfriend or not? Uh, well, is your most important ex-girlfriend currently a sophomore in high school and also the smartest kid in school? No and no. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Emily is. And if, uh, uh, if you go off grade point average in test scores, at least. Uh, but she has this problem uh, that she has become labeled as uh, some and, and people don't notice her personality or frankly anything other than her test scores. How does she avoid and or deal with being objectified for her intelligence? Thank you. Well, I mean, the first thing that I would say, Emily, uh, maybe this is the same Emily who's who's a driver because they're both 15. Maybe. Well, I, they do seem to be roughly the same age. On the other hand, I, I, I my understanding is that of that generation of young Americans, about 75% of the women are named Emily. <laughs> I think there may be a lot of Emilys, yes. So, Emily, the first thing that I would say is that uh, you have to remember that, like, uh, in- intelligence is separate from test scores and really any other metric, right? Like, uh, to me, uh, test scores reflect uh, not intelligence, but hopefully, if the tests are good, mastery of material. Um, so it's not about potential, it's about, um, achievement. Although I don't think that like, you know, what's easily quantified is often a particularly good measure of achievement or understanding. So, um, assuming that we're talking about achievement and understanding and being able to contextualize your life uh, better in the universe than most people, there's nothing to resent about that. Well, I, I, I don't think that... I. Th- I think that you. I think that what Emily is saying isn't necessarily that she is the smartest. Like she started out that way by saying she's the smartest kid in school. But but what she's saying is is she has this problem that that maybe she doesn't even think that about herself. But that's what everybody thinks. That, like that's the that's the niche oh, right. she has okay. taken. So in everyone school. thinks like they look at Emily and they think that's the smart she's girl, the smartest kid, and yeah. they make all of these broad conclusions about Emily yeah. based on this idea that she's the smart girl. Right, right, and and so she's being stereotyped, and of course it's it's uh, not the it's a. Of the things to be stereotyped for, being a smart girl is certainly not the worst one. Um, and like, and you actually also probably get a number of advantages uh, because people assume that you are smart, and, and they might not, they're probably not social advantages, but there are uh, you know you probably get extra attention from teachers and and maybe even the administration and your parents and probably a lot of support. Um, but uh, breaking out of that and like and like being a little sick of just being this one thing to everybody in their mind, it can be very frustrating. I I, I would imagine. Um, and no, I, you're right, Hank. Yeah. I think that anytime the world sees you as just one thing, it's exhausting because you aren't just one thing. And it's very difficult to have to constantly meet uh, someone's expectations for what they think the smart kid is or what they think the, you know, any any uh, simplistic, less than complexly human definition of personhood uh, is exhausting to have to live inside. Um, so I think the thing that I would recommend to Emily is just to re- remember that, that you aren't uh, merely the smart kid, but also to remember that like the people around you aren't merely the th- the, the boxes that you would put them in. Mm-hmm. Um, that in fact, like you're all extremely uh, complex and like these these weird huge webs 
of um, of personhood. You know what I was thinking about yesterday, Hank? What? How many organisms are there inside of my body? There's a lot. I mean, are there over a billion? Uh, living organisms? Yeah, probably. There's over a billion living organisms inside of my physical corpus right now? Uh, I would guess yes. But, like, given that, given that there are over a billion things that are not me currently inside of me, like, how, how, what can we, what, what does that even mean? What does me mean? <laughs> me is really like this gigantic Petri dish hosting parasites. Yeah, I mean, you're also, there's also a lot of you and you as, as well. Sure, there's a, I'm sure there's a, a billion cells that are me, but there's a billion cells that aren't. There's something d- profoundly disturbing about that to me. Anyway, my point, Emily, is that um, you are, are, are not one thing. You are also like a bunch of amoebas living inside of your gut or whatever. But, um, uh, but if you, um, if you know that at your core, then you will, you will chafe against other people putting you in the box, but you will also make it ultimately, I think, make it harder for people to put you in that box. Yes. Um, but I would also say that the, that the probably most common thing that people do when they find themselves in this place is that they rebel against that image of themselves. Uh, but I would say, do your best not to do that because, uh, because rebelling against being the smart person means, uh, making yourself dumb. So don't make yourself dumb. Uh, make yourself uh, more complicated, uh, and that's really this, uh, a lot of the story of being a human is is as increasing abilities in different ways and and becoming more more unique than you you already were. Um, but don't uh, rebel against it and and uh, and and lose interest in school and and uh, uh, because that's that's could have actual uh, lifelong badness associated with it because you're smart and you should be smart and there's nothing wrong with that i totally agree hank can i uh ask you another question do it all right hank this question comes from walker who asks dear john and hank i've been having a problem lately where i feel annoyed at myself for watching and enjoying other people's creations without myself creating something worth sharing i feel kind of like a short sale i guess what should i do to start creating and to live with my human need for affirmation First off, Walker, great mm. question, and I like the fact that you mm-hmm. acknowledged your human need for affirmation. I think a lot of times when I think about that question, I don't think about um, the affirmation side of things because, uh, you know, in the last several years, I've been very blessed to um, have lots of outside affirmation for my work. Um, I, I I think it's really important um, to watch and enjoy other people's creations. I think it's really important to be an audience. And I think that enthusiastic members of an audience are also creators. I don't think that um, creative work can exist independent of an audience. So don't sell yourself too short uh, being a a, a passionate member of an audience because that is um, a kind of creation. You are making up the things that you watch and read and enjoy uh, with the people who made them and, and they wouldn't exist without you um, in the sense that like you, you sort of like make it real in a different way uh, when you read a novel than when anyone else reads the novel because you are translating uh, the words into ideas in your head. Um, but I totally understand like that urge to make things as well. And I think like Hank and I started out making uh, online video in large part because we enjoyed being part of online video uh, audiences so much that we were like, oh, we should be on the other side of the camera. Yeah, indeed, that is that is uh, that is how that started. I, uh, yeah, I think that 
the hard part of creation is uh, getting past the part where you're doing it and no one's paying attention because you're not that good at it. Um, the great thing about, like the wonderful thing that happened to me and John is that online video was so new that even if we were pretty bad, we were better than, uh, than, than the rest of what was happening, which was nothing. And so there just wasn't a lot going on, and so it was easier to stand out. Um, and that that and and then as online video grew, we got to get better at making videos, uh, along with the growth of of online video. And and now we are fairly good at it. Uh, and uh, but but have been but people have been paying attention to us the whole time, which is great. And we got so lucky, and nobody gets that lucky. Uh, and and yeah. Nobody gets that lucky, uh, and so you have to you have to push yourself to make things uh, because, and knowing that some of the things you're going to make aren't going to be appreciated because maybe they just aren't going to be that good, or maybe because it's very difficult to find an audience for for creations, um, whether or not they are good. Sometimes in this world, yeah, I mean, you got to take a certain amount of pleasure and joy in the act of making something, and something that I've realized now that I now that I have an audience is that, um, you know at least for me, when it comes to writing, having an audience doesn't uh, help me write. Um, it doesn't help. It, it, it ultimately, I, I think, doesn't motivate me. I have to find uh, pleasure and joy in the act of making the gift, regardless of whether I think that anyone uh, will enjoy mm -hmm. or appreciate the gift. Um, I have to find a way to love making yeah. the thing or else ultimately um, I will never make it. So you've got to find some at least to me, uh, you have to find some pleasure in the process and some joy in the process. And honestly, it's only been in the last couple of months when I really started loving writing again and loving being inside of a story that I've been able um, to, to make, well, what I hope anyway, is real, is real progress. Um, despite, you know, spending the last three years trying to work on a novel and like being very conscious of, um, of an audience and and which I'm very grateful for, but I think ultimately you've got to find pleasure in the making of something. John, I have been thinking a thing, and I haven't run it by anyone yet. So would you mind if I run it by you now? Yeah, sure. No, it's not like anyone's listening. Um, I think that there's only two things: there's how you feel, and there's how effective you are. And those are the two things that we're trying to that we're all trying to uh, to to craft for ourselves. Um, so what, like the direction, the effectiveness goes in, whether that's to make your, your family happy and healthy and stable, or whether it's to, you know, uh, take over a, a company and become powerful and control other people's lives, or if it's to, uh, cure malaria, uh, that's trying to make this, uh, irrelevant to morality, but just say like the, there, there's two things, there's your mood and there's your effectiveness. And the goal is to have a like the, uh, maximize the number of days when you you feel happy and uh, pleasant, and uh, and then at the same time maximize your ability to uh, have effects on the world. Whether and and ideally, I hope that uh, that those effects are positive because that's the kind of effect people want to have. Um, do you think that there are more than those two things? Uh, yes, I also I think that is a radical oversimplification of human life. I also think that that um, like a lot of your um, proposals for worldviews, uh, it excludes the absolute obsolescence that everything that humans do and make and are uh, will fall into. Like w everything that we think 
and do and make and all of the love that we feel for each other and everything uh, everything about people, every human creation and every human being will fall into an absolute black hole and there will okay. be I, I get no that. legacy from I got anything. It. Yes, we're all going to die. No, uh, not just we, that we're uh, all going to die, but that like... Everything's going to stop exist. I, I, right, like, I mean, I'm not forgetting the entire theme of our podcast. <laughs> it's a comedy podcast. About death. Not just death. But... But the absolute <laughs> universal obsolescence of all things, including the right. universe itself. But I think that that when I when we talk about effectiveness, like we talk about affecting the things that we care about. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But I think like I, so. My argument, my my counter argument, is that you're oversimplifying because uh, people uh, don't want to be like capital E effective. They want to be effective in certain ways, and the reasons they want to be effective in various ways is about more than mood and urge toward um, effectiveness. Like I think that, um, okay. I think that culture and the social order uh, shape. Um, shape lots of that stuff but i also think that 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 individual people um within uh social orders uh also you know also also make changes for reasons other than wanting to be happy or wanting to be effective i think that um altruism plays a role i think that uh narcissism plays a role i think that mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. I, I always feel like it's a little bit more of a complicated stew than you can fit onto a bumper sticker well what's the fun in that though Maybe we should just put that on a bumper sticker. This is a more complicated stew than you can fit on a bumper sticker. On a bumper sticker. Right. My consciousness is a more complicated stew than you can fit on a bumper sticker. A bumper sticker available now at DFTBA.com. Today's <laughs> podcast is brought to you by DFTBA.com, your friendly internet e-tailer for Dear Hank and John merchandise that does not exist yet. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by the smartest kid in school. The smartest kid in school turns out to be a lot more complicated than you think and you should give them a little more credit for their for the the, the variousness of their consciousness this podcast is brought to you today by 15 year old drivers 15 year old drivers <laughs> please please god please god just be careful ah <laughs> uh. Good. This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and house sold essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Chobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one -one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. 
And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order, plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. Hank, I think we have time for one more question before we get to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Uh, this question is from Alex. He writes, Dear John and Hank, what do you think of English class? I can wholeheartedly say that the only thing I've gotten out of all the classes I've taken is an increased vocabulary. I don't think that reading anything that's been assigned to me has helped me with anything else in life. For some perspective, I just graduated high school and will be majoring in computer science at university. Maybe it just doesn't help me yet, but I can't help but feel like I've wasted a lot of time reading these books and I just see English class as someone telling me how to have fun. Oh, interesting. Well, Alex, you're not going to like my answer. You might like Hank's answer. Um... Everybody wants me to say that uh, English classes are useless and that they like kill books by dissecting them and they take the, the soul out of reading and yada, yada, yada. And I just don't agree with that at all. Um, I feel like if you haven't gotten anything out of English class, that might be the fault of your English teachers, but it's most likely your fault. Um, because, uh, you know, we have this uh, glorious record of human storytelling that stretches back more than a, a thousand years um, where, where we can understand, like, what mattered to people and why. What mattered to Nathaniel Hawthorne? What mattered to Shakespeare? What mattered to, um, to, to Chaucer? And then, you know, what mattered to Homer when he was writing the Odyssey? But even putting that aside, uh, to me, the most important thing that we get from English class is an understanding of non-literal uh, communication. And I would argue that, like, essentially all of the most important communication is non-literal, that, like, uh, symbolism and uh, metaphor are the main ways that we approach one another as human beings and the main ways that we seek to understand each other. Like, I cannot really talk to you about my soul about the experiences and pain and joy that's inside of me without using symbolic language. Um, I mean, one, some would argue that like language is inherently symbolic and that when you, for instance, are engaging in computer science, like you are essentially trying to use this symbolic language to translate ideas that exist in your mind into programs that can be useful to people, um, which is what literature uh, is trying to teach. But putting that aside, because I know Hank will disagree with me there, um, I, I think that like trying to understand how we use language symbolically to communicate ideas to each other is absolutely essential. Like that, that is something that's really, really important. And the truth is that the, the books that you read in high school uh, are very useful for that. Now, Hank is going to disagree with me because I know he didn't read any of the books in his high school English class, and now he has this incredibly sophisticated symbolic imagination, which he absolutely does. But that's my own experience of um, of the benefit of high school English classes, is that uh, for me, it was a way into reading uh, about the ways that people who live lives very distant from mine approach the big questions of being a person, and then secondarily learning about uh, symbolism and metaphor as a way of communicating my internal experience to other people and appreciating uh, their uh, internal experiences when they describe them to me. All right, Alex, I hope that I have a satisfactory answer for you as well as John's very satisfactory answer, but maybe one that will hit a little closer to home uh, for your clearly uh, analytical mind. Um, we're really bad at knowing what affects us. 
we're really bad at knowing what builds us and what makes us who we are. I felt the same way as you when I graduated from school, that I had gone through a lot of classes that uh, didn't have a serious impact on me. And yet, when I look back at how I felt and saw the world when I was a freshman in high school versus how I saw and felt about the world when I was a senior in high school, those things changed dramatically. And it was uh, it's a combination of all of the classes that I took, a combination of all of the things that I learned, and also things that I learned outside of classrooms, of course. But, um, but I don't know that we know uh, how deeply we have been built by the things that we are asked to read or engage with in school or in life. Um, but I, but in, in my, like, I truly feel that, like, I am constructed out of the conversations I've had and the stories that I've had and and the thoughts that I've had and and the, and the things that have been shared with me, and um, and hopefully in in your English class as well as in other things, like you have been constructed into a more full and interesting person, and that uh, might not help you with your computer science degree, but it might very well ha- help you with uh, with asking interesting questions about your past and your future, and and engaging with other people in the world that you are going to uh, inhabit for the next hopefully uh, sixty or seventy years of your life. So. I was going to say at least 200. Well, you never know. Let's give the man some credit. He lives it he lives in a glorious future yes. that you and I will never glimpse Hank, because we are so much older than he yes. is. I suspect I'm going to take the over under on on his remaining years at 100. You think so? That's great news for Alex. No, congratulations Alex on on what will no doubt now that I have gambled on you be an incredibly long life. All right. Well, maybe Alex will be the one who codes his 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 consciousness into the into a computer for the very first time, and then Alex's consciousness will uh, will become sort of the overarching morality of the entire uh, entire world, and will control all of our actions, but in a way that makes us live happy and fulfilled lives. No pressure, Alex. Let's get to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Hank, what's the news from Mars so that I can get to the amazing news from Wimbledon? Well, John, as you know, on the surface of Mars are uh boring <laughs> sorry what <laughs> the news from mars is that as you know john there are uh these these features uh called recurring slope lineae which have been uh have been showing up in uh in in areas of mars that are that are deep depressions they show up in the summer months so when it's warmer and uh and there's much debate about what these things are made of and they look for all the world like uh water seeping into the sand of mars they come in the summer uh they they, they flow down the slopes and then in the winter they, they seem to just sort of evaporate slowly um but they they show up pretty fast and uh and and uh and these are uh, an area of tremendous interest and study uh the the there's no super consensus but most people think that they are probably it's probably super salty water super salty liquid water pouring down the slopes of martian craters and valleys and that is very cool uh but now there uh, is a, a huge amount of discussion going on not just about what these things are made of and, and and their properties and how they're where they're coming from how the the water might being might be being recharged but how we might uh, actually explore them and the potential uh, problems that might show up when exploring them because th- it may be that these areas are very muddy and so a rover would just sink right in. It's also if there's going to be an existing ecology on Mars then it's very likely that uh, that this is a place where that ecology would be thriving because there's liquid water. 
And if there is liquid water and there is an ecology, then we have to be very careful about exploring that area because if there's any earth-born bacteria that is introduced to this environment that could potentially survive, that they could that could totally wreck the existing ecology and, and ruin up ruin our uh, our one chance, possibly our only chance to ever observe uh, non-terrestrial life. Uh, and how it might have evolved on another planet. So there is a, a very heated discussion going on in the Mars community right now, particularly particularly regarding the Mars 2020 rover that will hopefully land on Mars uh, in the 2020s, and uh, and 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 whether that rover should uh, should investigate these things particularly because they might be an ecological place, or whether these whether these uh, these RSLs as they're called should be preserved as a kind of uh, a kind of like an area of Mars that should not be ventured into until we know more about it until and until we have a better uh, ability to explore without the possibility of bacterial contamination. So that's what's going on on the news from Mars today, which I just think is fascinating. Well, let me just tell you that the possibility of bacterial contamination is 100 percent. If I've learned anything <laughs> today, it's that my body is crawling with trillions of bacteria that I have more cells that are not me inside of me than I have cells that are me. So uh, I cannot go to Mars and touch anything or I will smear it in bacteria that is from Earth. That is correct, John. Well, Hank, that, that, that put me in the darkness, but, but I'll tell you what put me in the light. Last weekend, AFC Wimbledon were playing Knotts County, uh, League Two rivals Knotts County. Hank, I, I, I know you're familiar with Knotts County. It's where uh, the sheriff of Nottingham, Robin Hood, etc. lived. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so Knotts County Football Club is a mm. uh, well-established club in the, uh, the football league. AFC Wimbledon, of course, has only been in the league since 2011. And uh, they, were, they were down 1-0 to Knotts County in the 85th minute. You could just imagine the, the darkness, Hank, as we were looking down the table thinking, are we going to be in those relegation spots? Are we going to be leaving the football league? Are we going to be relegated to the conference so that we're not even a full-time professional team anymore and you won't see us in FIFA 17? Or instead, are we going to go from 1-0 down to 2-1 up? That's what happened, Hank. In the 85th minute... We were down 1-0, but then a miracle happened, and we scored two goals in the final five minutes of the game to come from behind before 4,000 people, 2,000 of whom were in the John Green stand, and win 2-1 against Knotts County. You'll never guess who scored the second goal, Hank. Just kidding, you will. It was the beast, Adobayo Akinfenwa. Our greatest player, the largest man in professional football, the strongest player in FIFA 16, the beast, Adebayo Fenwa scores in the 90th minute. AFC Wimbledon come from behind to win against Knotts County. Suddenly, we are 12th in League 2. We have a zero goal differential, which means we've scored as many goals over the course of the season as we've given up. I am full of hope. I am beginning to dream. Oh, it was beautiful. That sounds really exciting, John. Oh, my God. You can't even. It was just, it was, in, it was incredible. Two goals in five minutes to uh, to secure the victory. And, and everything is, is better and different and, and, and hope springs eternal hope that thing with feathers oh the irrepressible audacious thing at the heart of all human experience hope emerged that morning in south london um i would also like to say that uh 
that that AFC Wimbledon, uh, the, the club uh, this week welcomed uh, aid workers um, from around the world uh, who have been uh, working um, uh, especially uh, on the refugee crisis um, that that Wimbledon uh, welcomed a bunch of aid workers from uh, from around the world to uh, uh, to South London and gave them a great experience over the weekend. Um, so that uh, that speaks, I think, to the kind of club that it is owned by its fans. Hank, now uh, now one five thousand six hundredth owned by you because I just made you a member of the uh, the Don's Trust. I just bought you a membership. Uh, you can Google uh, AFC Wimbledon Trust if you want to become a member of the uh, um, uh, of the trust. But Hank, you you can't do that because I already made you one. Oh, well, thank you very much. I'm honored. Uh, do you, what? What did we learn today, John? Well, we learned that it's just incredibly, incredibly important for 15 year olds to drive carefully, <laughs> and if at all possible, with an adult at all times. Uh, we learned that uh, both Hank and John actually think that English class is important, even if John. Uh, thinks that it's important in different ways than Hank does. And of course, we learned uh, that the human body is not really a human body at all. Instead, it's a large uh, container of bacteria. It is essentially just a sausage casing um, in which the sausage is not a person, but is a uh, teeming mass of parasites. I also want to say uh, that last time we talked about how NerdCon Stories, our, our event in Minneapolis, which is going to be amazing, was going to be on October 10th and 11th. That was a lie. It's going to be on October 9th and 10th. So those are the actual dates of NerdCon Stories. Don't show up on the 10th because it starts on the 9th, just like it says on your ticket if you got one. If you don't got one, we still got a few left, and you are welcome to purchase them. Hank, do you remember when you tried to comfort me by telling me that there was only like 8 to 10 pounds of bacteria inside of my body at any given moment? I said 3 to 8. 3 to 8. Oh, yeah, sure. There's only, there's only 3 to 8. First off, that's an incredibly wide range. How, how do I how do I get one of the bodies that has how do I get one of the bodies that has three pounds of bacteria? I don't want one of the bodies that has eight pounds. Um, well, there people are they're very different sizes. I don't know if you've done that, that. Probably means that I'm on the bigger side. So, so great, I probably have six pounds of bacteria inside does, of me right now. Yeah. Six pounds of not me inside of me. Now, whenever anyone whenever anyone asks for my weight, I'm going to give my weight minus six pounds because that isn't my weight. It's the bacteria inside of me. Oh man, I hope that I'm right about this six pounds of bacteria thing. Whatever. If we're not, we'll uh, correct it in next week's podcast. Uh, our podcast is edited by our good friend Nick Jenkins. And uh, the theme music is from Gunnarola. And if you want to email us, you can do so at hankandjohn at gmail.com. We'll try to answer as many of your questions as possible. You can also follow us on the Twitter, Hank Green and John Green, uh, or on Instagram, where Hank is Hank Green, and I am John Green Writes Books, the worst Instagram username ever. Sorry. Oh, well, I, I haven't been using Instagram at all lately, so you can follow me on Snapchat. It's HankGRE. God, I wish you would get over Snapchat. I love Snapchat so much. Thank you so much for listening. And as we say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome.